You're listening to Trek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. I need another thousand. I admire your courage, Miss... Uh... Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr... Bond. James Bond. Mr. Bond, I suppose you wouldn't care to, um, raise the limit? I have no objections. No. Looks like you're out to get me. It's an idea at that. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Trek FM's local watering hole where we just kick back, have a great time. I know that uh, this is the perfect time to fix that cold martini or anything else that you really enjoy that really gets you in the mood for Bond. James Bond, because tonight we are going to be starting on a retrospective that's going to last for a few years as we look at all of the James Bond films. Now, as you know, we have already looked at all of the Daniel Craig films to this point. We don't know if he'll be back or not, crossing our fingers. Uh, so with me to start this off, is the one, the only, John Champion. Hey, everybody. Great to be here at the 602 Club. I feel kind of bad because, you know, I, I am a martini guy. I love a martini. Um, but today I, I had a uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale before doing this show. So I feel I, I'm kind of like a low-rent 21st century Bond. You know, not... <laughs> like, we, we well, all... At least it wasn't a red stripe. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, see, that would have been theme-appropriate. But uh, but no, I, I you know we we all sort of uh, had a grumble when when Bond started getting promoted by Heineken. We're like, really, Heineken and James yeah. Bond? Uh, but, and it's uh, not a good beer. No, no, it's not. I, I learned that when I was sixteen and got off the plane in France, and I could drink legally. And I ordered a Heineken, and I never did it again. Never. Yeah, I, and and I mean it's genius for Heineken because you know James Bond makes things cool, mm -hmm. so it makes you want to drink a Heineken nope. so you feel like Bond. <laughs> nope. But nope. then you realize <laughs> Bond must already be trashed when he's drinking the Heineken, so he doesn't care. Yeah, yeah. No, that's the only <laughs> explanation. That's it. Yeah. So I'm switching to martinis for the next one. Exactly. Well, before we do dive into talking about Dr. No, just want to remind everyone that we are part of the Trek FM network. You can find all of our shows on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. You can also find us on Twitter at Trek FM and, of course, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. Leave us a voicemail. Go to SpeedPipe.com slash Trek FM. We'd love to hear from you, of course. We're also on the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group there on Facebook. It's a great place to have a discussion with any of the fans here at Trek FM. So go type Babel into the search field on Facebook or click discussion on any of the menu bars there on Trek.FM and that is our main website. And of course, we also love to get emails from you. I know people don't write emails as much anymore, but go to Trek.FM slash contact. Choose the 602 Club show there in the drop-down box. 
comes straight to us. I always forward it to the hosts of the show as well that are with me. So love to hear from you. And, and as we're talking, you know, Bond, as we're starting this retrospective uh, with the very first Bond film, I can't think of a better guy to have with me because, John, I know that you love the 60s spy genre. I mean, yeah. we both, I, I think, raved about uh, Man from Uncle right. last year because it felt like one of these old Bond movies. Yeah, yeah, it was a real tribute to the style and uh, not just physical style, but kind of the fun of that era. You know, it's a little strange that, that those movies and the height of that craze was right at the height of the Cold War that, that could have very easily turned hot at any moment, right at the end yeah. of the Cuban... <laughs> I mean, seriously, right on top of the Cuban Missile Crisis. But yet we were ready to have fun with spies. We were ready for things to be kind of tongue-in-cheek. And, and like I said with Uncle, not necessarily a parody, but this sort of more lighthearted approach to real world things. So um Bond really hit at the right time and and I, I just I have a love affair for the the look, the fun, the style. I hate to say camp because I think that's a word best reserved for Batman. Um or maybe the Roger Moore era. Or maybe the Roger Moore era, right, right. You know, sometimes done well, sometimes done extremely poorly, but we'll get there. Um <laughs> But yeah, I, I love that period, and, and, and I said on another show, I, I can't remember which show, but um, I, I was born a few decades too late, where in another life I would be uh, an international secret agent crossing the world on ocean liners and uh, fighting the bad guys with a PPK. <laughs> well, I, I want to ask you, because that's a really interesting thing that you were commenting about, you know, that this is the height of the Cold War, and do you think maybe... This spy genre helped people in some ways kind of cope with the idea that the world could legitimately end as we knew it any moment because some leaders or somebody hijacked something and it just went to hell in the handbasket, you know, at the snap of a finger. I think there's no doubt about it. You know, we like to find simple solutions to very complex problems, whether it's in politics or economics or, or whatever we we like to think that okay all we need is the one guy or the one plan to make things right to put things back in order the way they should be and james bond represents that he's the good guy who can survive on his wits and charm and muscle when he has to and save the world realistically it's not one guy who saves the world but in this case it is and we like to think that he's always on our side it gets more complex when you get further and further along and i think that's why it was so great that we got to talk about those craig films and now we do the rest of bond in retrospect the world got a lot more complex and james bond's world got a lot more complex but now we get to sort of simplify things again and and relive it through nostalgia not just because, it, again, it, it's a style, but we kind of get to relive it because we, we look at this um, maybe a, a bit of acceptable self-delusion that all we need is the hero to come in and make things right. You know, that, that's a comforting thing probably for an audience then and certainly an audience now, too. Well, and I, I think, um, you know, maybe today and uh, you see the proliferation of superhero films and I think people long for the idea that somebody out there could come in and solve the problem. 
even though now even those films are starting to get more complex and have uh, a, a lot more uh, emotion and um, I guess really the best word is a complexity to them that they have not had beforehand where, you know, I mean, take, for example, 78 Superman mm-hmm. as opposed to Winter Soldier or Man of Steel. I mean, it's it's much different world. It's a much different portrayal. And even the heroes are struggling sometimes to be heroes or heroic. So I, I think it's uh, we're it, it's so interesting to see the way in which um, when you go back, it, we love storytelling where good beats evil yeah. somehow. When it when you boil it down to that's kind of what happens and and. I don't know what that says about us, but I think it 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 says a lot about humanity that at our core, that's what we want to see happen. I was trying to think about when when rewatching this movie, um, the the very specific time that this took place, 1962, and it's a movie made for that contemporary audience of 1962, where you've got one foot in the 50s, one foot in the 60s, you know. Playboy magazine has been around for not even 10 years yet. The pill is just being commercially uh, made commercially available. You know, th- this is a really interesting time. And World War II is not a distant memory at this point. It's, oh, no, it, it's immediate and recent history. So there's all this going on in the world that, that sort of colors the outlook of an audience who sees this in 1962. And you've got Sean Connery as this very macho, very manly guy who, who again, can save the world, just like the guys during World War II, just like the Allies saved the world. He, he represents all of that. You know, if... If it wasn't the spy craze in the 1960s, it would be the John Wayne cowboy movies of the 50s. You know, mm, yeah. it, it's kind of cut from the same cloth of that. And, and it's this desire for like a little bit of hero worship and a little bit of this fantasy fulfillment of, of what we hope the world can be like and we, what we hope our heroes are like. And it's interesting to think uh, it, that Fleming himself kind of. I don't know if he's some sort of strange prophet where he sees a the way the world is changing or maybe just the world became more in line with how he kind of wanted it to be, the kind of uh, the idea of the sexual liberation that we see throughout the 60s. And, um, you know, it, like say when you're watching uh, Mad Men and how that show changes over time as they move through the 60s yeah. and the way in which people changed, the way in which everything changed. And it's interesting to see that right here at 62, you have this character, this James Bond character, who is it's almost kind of like the torchbearer for what the 60s will kind of become. Yeah. But before it's really ready to be that just yet, it's very interesting and in how much he is and he evokes that cultural zeitgeist of that time it's it's like he is i don't know i i almost think feel like bond becomes the thing that helps maybe start to liberate people uh you know what I mean? does that make sense well, to, you see where i'm kind of going with that yeah i mean let, let, let's look at it this way you know if we were to paint with really broad brush strokes 
and look at sort of the the American audience of the 1950s. You know, what does TV look like at the time? What do movies look like at the time? The sort of the ideal was this post-war suburban culture, right? But we've got this little gap, this little window here that's the end of the 50s, but it's before the Beatles get to America. It's before the Beatles are really huge in the UK as well, for that matter. They're still early nascent career at this point. And you've got this rise of this urbane, worldly hero who wears great suits, who drives great cars, who knows how to have a drink, who knows how to have a meal, who loves women. That's going to be a controversial point <laughs> for every Bond film that we go through. Yeah. Love might be too <laughs> strong a word, um, but he's certainly got a thing for women. This is, to me, it's almost the last gasp of adult culture when you said it's mad men yeah you know mad men changes between 1960 and 1970 it's a totally different world when you get to 1970 than what we started out with in 1960 if you follow the timeline of that show and the, this is that last gasp where you know the music is jazz the cool artists are still frank sinatra and and that group, you know, that those guys who came out of that post-war generation, you know, but the world is getting to be a smaller place and you've got jet travel. There's a shot early on in Dr. No, and you spend a long time looking at that Pan Am 707 landing in Kingston. Yep. yep. That just says everything about where and when this movie takes place, the kind of world that this movie wants to show to the world. Well, and it's an interesting thought. You, As you were saying that, I was thinking, he really is the original Don Draper. Mm -hmm. He is that character, you know, with the nice suit, likes the women, knows how to have a drink. You know, like he is that personification of everything that those ad guys kind of wanted to be. Yeah. You know, and it's weird to see how art imitates life and life imitates art. And, and really throughout the 60s, that was happening uh, in such a... I, I, it's just like this organic ball of, of I don't even know what to call it. You know what <laughs> right. I'm saying? Like, it's just so crazy yeah. how yeah. that worked. And I, I think, you know, I, obviously bringing Bond to the silver screen was going to be a huge thing. And uh, Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli, both at the same time, wanted to make this happen. In fact, Saltzman is trying to buy the rights from Broccoli and he won't sell. Right. And so they decide, well, let's not fight about it. Let's just start a partnership. And their first thought was, okay, we have these stories. Let's make Thunderball. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an interesting thought. And why do you think they might want to start with that one? Uh, because of all the stories to introduce Bond to, I don't know if that's maybe the best choice. Yeah, I, that's a good question. I mean, there's a lot that Thunderball has going for it. Um, but not out of step with any of the other great Bond movies. You know, you've got great locations. You've got some intriguing characters. Now, that movie would have looked very different had it been made in 1962 for the budget they made very Dr. No. Very yeah. <laughs> then instead in 1965 with a post-Goldfinger budget. Um, but I, I also think it kind of goes back to the, uh, you know, we were talking about the Cold War. We were talking about the this world of the, the nuclear scare. The idea that somebody could steal a nuclear warhead is a pretty intriguing idea. 
And of course, we see that in the world of James Bond, they kept remaking Thunderball over and over again, just giving it different trappings, <laughs> giving it different equipment. Yeah, that's very know? true. Um, this is, I think Dr. No also hits at a good time. And, and we'll talk very specifically here about the movies and not the books, because I think they have to be treated as very separate things. But at yeah, least, you know, definitely. at least in this movie, you're right before the U.S.'s real dominance of space. You know, you're right on that dividing line where it becomes an American industry and, and we, you know, the U.S. really dominated uh, that for the next decade. Um, so I like that there's this tie-in to the launch of a Mercury rocket. I like there's this idea that we're, you know, we're not just saving the world. We're, we're sort of, we're sort of saving face as well. You know, it might be one thing yeah. for a Mercury rocket to fail and, you know, hit, hit the wrong target and, and blow up at launch or what, whatever would have happened from the toppler that, uh, that Dr. No was using. but it's more important that we see Bond save face for the Western world in this. Well, and that's an interesting thing because I was doing some reading just about the background here, and they were talking about the idea that, you know, they chose Dr. No because of the longstanding rights issues that happened with Kevin McClory mm -hmm. and the screenplay with Thunderball, which will plague the series for a very long time until they actually get to make Thunderball. Right. And so they choose Dr. No, but one of the... the kind of uh, fortuitous events is is really the the U.S. has been having kind of an issue with things going awry at NASA at Cape Canaveral with some of their launches that so this whole storyline actually plays into what's been happening at NASA yeah. and and so they they really actually I mean i don't want to say luck out, but the, they really do that this is actually something that's very relevant to the time period. And like you said, it just fits right in with everything that's going on as the space race begins its trend towards heating up. Yeah. And so they're, they're really on the cusp of that. And so they make the right choice, I think, with Dr. No. And as we'll talk about later, I, I think the way that they introduce the character throughout this film is very smart uh, because you really get an opportunity to kind of cement who he is because the film is a little bit slower and all that. So on top of bringing Bond to the silver screen, the question became, you know, who are we going to have direct this? And, and they had names like Guy Hamilton and others, and pretty much everybody turned them down, but Terrence Young signs on uh, as director. And... I think, I, I don't know, but to me, I think this is probably their best decision next to casting Connery. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the two really have to go hand in hand. You know, we, we, could, um, we could speculate about which story would have gotten made and had they gotten those rights back for Thunderball or if they had just skipped ahead to a different one. We can speculate about that all the time. But the thing that you cannot speculate about, because it would have just become a, a complete other mess had it not worked out that way. If you don't have that combination with Terrence Young and, and Sean Connery, and Terrence Young really molding Sean Connery to be this character, um, I, I don't think you have anything there. I don't think you have anything that would really resemble the bond that, that we know and really respond to more than 50 years later. 
Well, and he, what, what's so great about him, and I was reading this, and he made this statement. He said, a lot of things in this film, the sex and the violence and so on, if you played straight, A, it would be objectionable, mm-hmm. and B, we're never going to get past the censors, but the moment you take the mickey out, you pull the tongue-in-cheek, it seems to disarm. And so he has this way of, as you said kind of earlier, there is this slight camp to bond. It this it's almost this otherworldliness to bond. This um, uh, he it it's like he's transcending the real world, yeah. you know, to like uh, because he's a, like a super character from the beginning, really. And so you set that up, and it's almost as if we are readily able to accept the sex, the violence, the all these other things that if not in this package that Terrence Young helps craft and create would become much more like, you know, honestly in the books, they're much closer to the Craig Bonds. They're dark, they're gritty, they're, the character is not necessarily all that likable. Um, some of the things he says are not all that likable. But what Terrence does is create something that people will accept without losing, I think, the soul of who James Bond is on page, but to be able to bring it to screen. And I think that is such an incredibly tricky balance to strike. And it's one of those things where where you or I may not be able to necessarily uh, quantify it, but you know it when you see it. Um we will accept that James Bond has a car in a couple of years that has machine guns that pop out of the headlights. We'll accept that that same car will make a smoke cloud and an oil slick. But then we don't accept when you flash forward 20 more years or 25 more years that Bond has a car that is invisible. You know? (laughs) And here's the thing. On paper, all right, on paper it's really hard to see the nuance of how that plays because it can just come down to an actor. It come, it, it may just come down to a reaction that is caught for a second too long on screen. Um, it may come down to a little piece of direction that an actor is given to say, okay, you don't necessarily buy this that's going on or take this part a little more seriously. You know, there are all these little subtle nuances that can make or break that feel. And with Dr. No, they really struck the right chord. You know, one of the things that I liked about this movie so much is that even though there are things in this that are truly fantastical, because it it is part real world and part science fiction, um, things are played so intimately there are so many shots in this movie where it's one or maybe two or maybe three characters on screen and they're in these for the most part tight little spaces it's it's kind of a claustrophobic Mm, movie to that extent you know um but that makes it feel a lot more real even when something that is clearly fictional and clearly contrived for the story is happening it helps you to buy it because you can feel yourself in that space. I think every single actor in the film plays it straight. Like there's never really a winking to the camera that we know this isn't real. Um, I I think that starts in a a great segue into the idea of casting Bond because here's where it gets really interesting. 
they originally want Cary Grant. Now, I love Cary Grant, and I've seen so many of his films, and he's one of my favorite actors from that time period. But he is so ultra smooth that I don't know if I'd buy him as Bond. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm with you. I have just a huge amount of respect um, and love for everything that Cary Grant ever did. Um, North by Northwest is a masterpiece. Oh, yeah, and he's so we need to talk about that on really the show should. sometime. Really I love that. That, that is a prototype for Bond, but yeah, yeah it is, yeah, and yeah. it's a big prototype for the Man from Uncle as well because you've got Cary Grant as the innocent. You you have him as the guy who doesn't fit in this world of spies. But he was a guy who could play that. He could pull off the drunk scene. He could, you know, he could pull off all these other moments. And if you saw him doing James Bond like that, I think by 1962, you know, he retired, I want to say in either 64 or 66 with uh, Walk, Don't Run was his last movie. Um, if you picture Cary Grant from Notorious or Suspicion, that was a Cary Grant who might have been able to pull off Bond but not the post, uh, you know, houseboat or North by Northwest Cary Grant. Yeah, yeah. Post, I, I think post houseboat is really where you start to lose it in a petticoat junction mm-hmm. and all of that kind of stuff, uh, which are all amazing films. Yeah. But he starts to play almost a parody of himself in a lot of those places, and you know, I, mentioning North by Northwest, it does make me see that maybe I'm a little bit wrong in my first, uh, you know, jumping the gun on saying, no, he's a little too smooth because he does play somebody who can be harder. He's more nuanced than I'm giving him credit for. But I think the thing that makes Connery such a, a gem to find, like he is the diamond in the rough. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he is the diamond that is forever in this, is is really that he isn't somebody who's smooth or suave. He is the guy who has to be taught how to be that. Yeah. And I think it comes through in the film that Bond, when he puts on the suit, when he puts on the tuxedo, he's becoming a character. That's not who he is deep down inside. Right. He's just playing a part. And, and that controlled, like caged animal almost that that's covered by this refinement i think connery plays that so well because you really do there are scenes especially in dr no where he gets harsh or he kills somebody in cold blood and there is that hardness to him that doesn't come if it's just the suave I guess we could say the the Roger Moore style Bond. Yeah. Well, you know, I think part of it has to do with, yeah, and that is a good point. You know, you could draw maybe more of a parallel between Roger Moore and Cary Grant than you could Cary Grant and Sean Connery. But part of the thing here is hitting that sweet spot where you've got an actor who is somewhat accomplished and and clearly can carry the role and be the physical type for what the role demands but it really helps to have an unknown bond. You know, I hate it every few years when the rumors start to fly about who will be the next James Bond, and the names that come up are all really well-known names. I don't want that. I don't want that for the next James Bond. You know, uh, if you go back eight years or so, uh, well, gosh, 10 years now, more before we had Daniel Craig, 
names like uh, Clive Owen, who I think is fantastic. He's a great actor. He would make a great Bond. But I think you lose something when you have somebody who is so known for other roles. Sean Connery was there right at the right time. His biggest hit up to that point was Darby O'Gillum of Little People. No slight against that movie, <laughs> but, you <Yeah>. know. <laughs> Don't hear us trash yeah, that. Yeah, but, but it wasn't exactly a worldwide household name. Um, and same thing with Roger Moore, even if you go up a few years, you know, yes, he was definitely known for the saint, but the saint wasn't the runaway smash success all over the world to make Roger Moore that household name, uh, before he became Bond. Um, you almost have to see Bond and the actor as one. And I think with Cary Grant, you go to a Cary Grant movie because you like Cary Grant. And and he can push or pull what he does in a role. Maybe he's a little darker. Maybe he's a little funnier. Maybe he's a little grumpier. Maybe, you know, whatever the case may be. But you're still enjoying him for being Cary Grant. You weren't going to see Dr. No because in 1962, you just had to see the latest Sean Connery movie. It wasn't about that. You wanted to see it because Dr. No was one of John Kennedy's favorite books. And you wanted to see it because Playboy had serialized Ian Fleming's stories in its magazine. That's what you knew of James Bond, and that's why you wanted to see it on screen. Well, and that that's a good point, too, because I'm, I'm thinking about Craig being cast as Bond. And Craig hadn't done enough to really have put him on the map in a way that made him somebody that was just, I'm going to go see the next Daniel Craig right. film. You know, uh, Pierce Brosnan... Is probably one of the biggest names that they made oh, yeah. Bond yeah. because he was a lot more well known by that point, and obviously he had a huge history with almost being Bond. Uh, but yeah, I'm thinking of through it. You know, so many of the actors they choose are people that you don't know as well. Yeah. You know, and so yeah, and and makes me wonder. You know, will Henry? Cavill be too big <laughs> at that point to be a good Bond, even though I still think he'd be a great sure. Bond. But that's a whole nother podcast. Sure. <laughs> so, um, what a what a, you know, so Sean Connery too. I mean, because we're talking about casting Bond, what else is it about him for you specifically that just cements him? Because I, I still personally, when I think Bond, he's the first person I think of, and then the next person I think of is hmm. Craig. So, um, but for you, is it that way? Do you still kind of think of Bond and think Connery? Hmm. You know, that's a good question because I, when I think of Bond, I, boy, that, that is a really good question because that's challenging me as to how I think about these movies. And it sounds a little weird, but honestly, I think about them as movies as a whole first. Then I think about the actor and the role. You know, I, you can't you can't sit there and play the uh, the the armchair quarterback and say, "Boy, I, I wonder what Diamonds Are Forever would have been like if Roger Moore had stepped into the role at that time, or what would that have been like if George Lazenby had carried on for another movie rather than mm, Connery yeah. coming back?" Because I think the movie itself. The tone of the movie is so tied to the actor, and it's not the actor calling the shots. We we definitely have to understand that. But but the the producers, the the writers, the directors are sort of molding it as this collective whole to make that final product. So 
I guess when I think of James Bond as a concept, I'm thinking of a collection of movies, a collection of books, a collection of stories. And and it's also, I think I said this before on uh, on one of our other shows, I think the parodies are just as important to James Bond as James Bond is. <laughs> you know, when somebody says James Bond, they also mean Austin Powers. They they also yeah. <laughs> mean our man Flint. They also mean all these other things that have sort of wormed their way into the collective consciousness of what that style and what that formula is. Um, you know, it, it was it was a delight going back and rewatching Doctor No and doing what we do for this show, which is to really study it, watch it with the subtitles on, and watch the special features on the Blu-ray. Which, by the way, that Blu-ray is gorgeous. <laughs> Oh, it, it, yeah. it, not only is it gorgeous, but those documentaries that they brought over for when they did the DVD series are really yeah. great. I mean, we're yeah. talking like hour and a half documentary for each right. film uh, retrospective, and it's really worth yeah. watching. But in Dr. No, it, you know, there's something that is really fresh about Connery. He looks fantastic. He, yeah, he, you know, he um, it, it's unfair to talk about how actors have aged because everybody ages differently. Let's just narrow down on Sean Connery in 1962. Tall, thin, muscular. Um, I was totally entertained that that Blu-ray is so good. You can see his tattoos. <laughs> yes, you can. I, I and In fact, that's so funny you mentioned that, because I remember when I made the switch from the DVD to the mm -hmm. Blu-ray, and I was like, what is that on Connery's arm? Yeah. I didn't realize that he had had tattoos, but yes, you can see that they have kind of, I guess, whitewashed the tattoo as much as right. possible, but you still see right. it because the Blu-ray is yeah, so good. Yeah, and, and he's just the right amount of those attributes that we want Bond to be. He's just the right amount smarter than the people around him, <laughs> you know, without without it yeah. being a parody, <laughs> without him being a jerk about it. He's just the right amount of fish out of water when he goes to his destination. He's just the right amount having fun with it, too. You know, it, mm, even yeah. if he's about to kill somebody, that there's still like this in some scenes, not all, but there, there's still a lighthearted feel to a lot of this movie, it, even though they're clearly taking their side. You know, like you said, the people on screen are taking this seriously. They're playing it straight, but they're also playing it straight in this sort of parallel universe to the real world. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking through as you're talking and, and there is something as we were uh, referencing at the beginning, you know, bond is such a, he's such a construct in our imaginations at this point that, he is an amalgamation of all the people that have played him and all of the parody material that's come with him. And, you know, when you think about characters like that, you know, a character like Superman who's been around for over 75 years or these kind of things, like they become everything that they have been, which encompasses a lot. Right. But what I think is special about connery here and his casting is he gets to set the stage for everyone else you know and 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 you can never take that away from him and i have to say 
He does it so well and so effortlessly in this film. It's fantastic. And and not only that, but what I love about Connery is that in this film, he does have a little bit of vulnerability to him still as Bond. Um, yes, he, in cold blood, shoots the professor mm-hmm. in the bedroom. But there is the scene where he's trying to escape and he's climbing through the tunnels and stuff. And he's been beat up. He has been electrocuted. Um, and he plays that with such a like a sense of, I could die at any moment. Yeah. I have to keep going. That's a great range for this character to be playing and, and giving us nuance to somebody who will become basically like a superhero. But at this point, he's still very much in that development phase. And I think he does a great job of setting the stage for everybody else that we're going to get. And and just like you said, you want somebody who's an unknown so they can become Bond. Mm -hmm. And Connery is the first one to become Bond. And now everybody else in some ways has to riff off of him. Right. Right. Because he's the originator. And I, I think that's just one of the things that makes him special. And they and the rest of the world, I think, are blessed that they found him to be that because Otherwise, you know, if the Bond character doesn't work, if you cast the wrong person, you could ruin the franchise before it even begins. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, it is interesting about Cary Grant. You know, one of the big reasons that they didn't sign him is that he wouldn't sign to multiple movies. It's funny, Alfred Hitchcock said the same thing about him, that, that his favorite actor to work with was Cary Grant. But he never knew from one month to another, was the guy retired? Was he still working? He just didn't know. So it it was hard to rely on him for anything. And and I get it that, you know, with James Bond, they were trying to launch a franchise. They wanted somebody who could stick around for the long haul. Um, And and when you do something like that, you've got to get an unknown, you know? Look at the new Star Trek movies, you know? uh, uh, J.J. Abrams had to sign people that that they could sign, that Bad Robot could sign for three, four more movies. And you don't get that when those people are coming into it as huge megastars. Yeah, I mean, when you think that some of Chris Pine's biggest roles were Princess Diaries yeah. 2 at that point. <laughs> right, you know, right. Yeah, you def- and, and, you know, uh, Zachary Quinto being on yeah. Heroes, it's, it's not really leading somebody to want to say, you know what, I don't want to take that movie yeah. deal. Nope. Yeah, so... Well, next to Connery, obviously, there's a lot of people that are in this film that are going to set the stage for everything that's going to come next. We get a wonderful cast of characters. I I think it's only appropriate that we talk about the first Bond woman and the one that really, I mean, we talk about setting the stage. Her entrance is world famous. Sylvia Trench. You know, (laughs) well, her entrance actually is, is... Let's talk about her. Let's okay. do it. Let's let's switch it okay. up. Okay. All right. Um, I love it. I love it. You made me. <laughs> you got me, John. You, but no, that's a great thought because what's interesting about Sylvia Trench is that they had planned on her being Bond's own recurring girlfriend, yes. and she is Bond's only recurring girlfriend because she will appear in From Russia with yeah. Love, which is fantastic that they gave that nuance to the character at the very beginning. And she's not in the book. So this is an invention of the films. And her repartee with Bond at the very beginning when he's introduced 
is, I mean, it's it's classic. Yeah. yeah. So I I know I kind of stole your thunder a little bit there, but but I had to. I think she she has a fantastic introduction, losing <laughs> at Shimon de Fer. and when we see her again in Bond's apartment, and it's just the shot of her putting in heels in a men's dress shirt. That is a great iconic scene as well. Yeah, um, it is. And, and she looks glamorous and and just simply beautiful. It would, boy, it really would have changed things quite a bit if she had stuck around as that recurring girlfriend. Um, I'm glad that we see a glimpse of her again, but had this been a thing that carried on for three, four, five, six, or ten movies... I think that really would have changed the character and it, it, it could have, it would be like having, you know, the captain's yeoman become the captain's girlfriend on Star Trek. I, I don't think that would work. It didn't work anyway for the kinds of stories that they wanted to tell. Um, but I do like the little slice of her that we get in this movie. I think it's really intriguing that she is a well, part of his world. She immediately goes toe-to-toe with mm-hmm. Bond in the scene, you know, um, as they're walking to to pay out. You know, she is um, giving it back just as good as he is. She is just as pursuant of him, we'll just say it sexually, as he is of yeah. her. They are, I mean, they are laying it on thick with each other here. So it, what I like about her is just she's very empowered. She's not being taken advantage of by Bond. She wants this kind of relationship with him as much as he wants it yeah. with her. And there's nothing more alluded to, really, than that's what it's going to be. And which, when you think about it in 62, that is revolutionary. Yeah. yeah. She's she's pretty great. Again, she's this sophisticated urban character. She's not a damsel in distress. She's cool, you know, and she's tough. Um, would have been interesting to have seen more of her, but again, I get the reason for not keeping her around for movie after movie after movie. Well, and that's, let me just say, that's where I think it would be really interesting for them if they can get Craig back and they could get... um, Madeline Swan. Madeline Swan back, yes. I think that that would be a fantastic storyline to not have her die and to have them create a kind of a relationship. She knows what he has to do. If she doesn't, if he has to do some things with a lady Mm -hmm. to get information or whatever, that she doesn't feel, you know, that uh, she's threatened in any way or something. I just, I feel like that would be, we've never explored that with Bond. I think maybe it's time to explore that with Bond just maybe once or twice, and they really have that opportunity, but who knows what's going to happen. So, no, I like that you mentioned Sylvia Trench, because I think, especially as we'll get to talk about the next time with From Russia With Love, it is fantastic to see her Mm -hmm. again. And I like that there is this sense, even here at the beginning with the first two films, there's this continuity with the character. Right. And we always talk about... That, you know, really the only continuity big time in Bond is what we see in the Craig films. But actually, these start off a trend that gets a little bit broken as we move into Goldfinger. But the first two, it's great. And what I love, before we talk about Honey Rider, <laughs> is the money penny. Lois Maxwell was actually initially offered the role yes. of Trench. 
And she says no because of the things that Sylvia is asked to do. Right, yeah. Um, But again, it's kind of kismet that you have the right actor in the right role. We could not imagine the next dozen plus Bond films without Lois Maxwell as Moneypenny. So you kind of have to have her where she lands. Had she taken the role of Sylvia Trench, would you end up with Eunice Grayson uh, uh, Gayson as uh, Money Penny? I doubt it. <laughs> you know, but that yeah, yeah, it doesn't have the it just just doesn't have that. I, there's something about Money Penny where it almost she's that kind of almost girl next door. Mm-hmm. So that crush that she has on Bond comes off so well, and yet she still has her own wonderful glamorous sexiness yep. that you know still makes her somebody that i think bond might want yeah, you know what yeah. i'm saying like th- there's there is that undertone there that's not just them playing with each other yeah it, it's it's yeah. wonderful no it, it's really true it, it, it's spot-on casting um and, and boy how great again to see somebody at go back and watch it from the beginning and and see Lois Maxwell as a sort of young, fresh-faced, uh, ingenue type as the secretary, as as Money Penny. She's really delightful in this, and and they are very touchy feely in it. You know, that is yeah. very true. I, I always um, it always made me wonder if they had a good relationship off screen as they do on mm-hmm. screen, because her and Connery really do have a wonderful chemistry yep. together. Um, it, it it seems as if they genuinely like each other right. as people right. beyond screen. And I think that is one of the things that is wonderful when it comes across, especially when we're going to have so many years of their repartee. It makes it mean more when you when you really believe mm-hmm. it. Well, let's keep taking these in reverse order. I think that's the way to go here. Then we've got M. <laughs> it's Bernard yeah, Lee. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, well, and... Gosh, when I think of how many movies that Bernard Lee does in the series, mm-hmm. it is pretty phenomenal. And he sets, I mean, he is the the bastion of British keeping your yeah, end up. Yeah. You know, I mean, he is, he's just phenomenal. There's nothing he does in these films that isn't great. I mean, I and, and his... His snarkiness with Bond is my favorite yes. part. Yeah, there's something about him that's totally believable in the authoritative position. Um, and you believe the weight of everything that he says, even if it's kind of crazy, <laughs> if you were to really drill down to the details, uh, particularly in some of the later Bond movies. But you absolutely believe what he's going to say, and you believe that um, he is not joking about any of it, and he will take Bond to task. So kind of, again, perfect casting there, and it's hard to imagine uh, anybody else in the role at that time. You know, obviously we have some great M's later on. Uh, yes, you know, yes. Uh, but but they... Man, well, Judy yeah. Dench, I mean, is, she's, is just She's phenomenal. carrying that tradition on um, because you would... Judy Dench in that role of somebody that I would certainly never argue with. <laughs> so no yeah. not at all not at all which is wonderful when you see her in the extras and judy is is dame judy mm-hmm. dench excuse me i apologize dame uh but uh she is somebody that is so different from that character yes. you know she is she seems so warm and loving and all of those things that m isn't <laughs> 
except to bond every once right. in a while, like every once in a blue right. moon. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's very true. Yeah. Uh, well, what did what did you think about uh, Joseph Wiseman playing Doctor No? Which, interestingly mm-hmm. enough, and I, I just read this today, but Fleming had always kind of wanted and pictured Christopher Lee yeah. as that character. Which wouldn't that have been interesting? Yeah, I, I didn't know that until recently. And man, I love Christopher Lee. You can just plug him into anything as the bad guy and I'm I'm there. I will absolutely watch anything that he's in. Uh but Joseph Weisman is great. Um it, it is it's interesting that he and uh Zena Marshall who played uh Miss Tarot in this movie both had to wear makeup to change their features to look more asiatic um to to fit the the uh, ancestral background of their characters. Um, which certainly today would be an incredibly controversial thing to do. Um, like Scarlett Johansson exactly. in Ghosts in the exactly. Shell. Exactly. So um, you sort of have to take all of this with a grain of salt because, you know, the, this is the sort of how things were done then in 1962. You wouldn't question it at all. Oh, sure, we'll just pick the actor and throw them in, like like uh, Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's, which... I simply can't watch anymore. It's so painful to see him in that role in that movie. Um, But what Joseph Weissman brings is this calm, dangerous cool to the whole thing that is the perfect foil for Bond. Um, He is dangerous, and they do this in such subtle ways. Again, it's the thing that sort of became the mold for all the other Bond villains that came after him. But his cool, quiet, sophisticated demeanor and showing his power just by crushing that little statue on the table. You know, little things like that that just show you that he is absolutely in control and uh, and could have Bond or Honey Ryder at that point killed on a whim, you know. Um, so he's he's pretty phenomenal. He's pretty great. Um, I loved the fact that he then much later appeared in uh, Buck Rogers in the 25th century. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was Draco in uh, in the uh, in the the pilot, and he showed up again, I believe, once more after the pilot. Uh, he he does. He has this cool menace. Mm-hmm. That I, I think he brings to the role, and you know, I, I think he plays the role with a respect. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, no, he's he's not Asian, but I don't think that he does anything that is utterly disrespectful to it either. Yeah. Um, and yes, this is is a very different time, and and you know, we can do all the complaining that we might want to about you know, you should maybe have gone for an Asian actor, but there weren't that many of them in Hollywood at this point. And as you, we mentioned earlier, you know, being so close after World War II, it's just, it's a touchy thing for everyone involved. Mm. And um, we can't change the past. We can only change the future. So we can learn from the mistakes. But he he does play the villain. And he, as you said, he just sets the tone for what Bond villains are going to be, which is the guy that is the smartest guy in the room who slips up mm-hmm. just enough to give Bond the opportunity to get the upper hand. And um, 
I, I, I like the way I, I think the the fact that he isn't over the top, he doesn't ever yell or anything like that. He just uh, he his voice has this kind of melodic quality to it and he, he doesn't rush his dialogue. He just kind of creepy. <laughs> And then, of course, those hands, yeah. you know, it just adds to the the whole persona. So I, I think he does the role justice and does it well. And um, one of the better early Bond villains. Um, well, so, yeah, I really it, enjoy it. It's funny because I, I mentioned Austin Powers earlier and Dr. Evil is so clearly a combination of all of the, the early Bond villains. Yeah. He, he's part <laughs> Blofeld and he's certainly part Dr. No even sillier when you get to the points of um, at the end of Dr. No, everybody in their uh, uh, radiation suits and particularly the one guy with the sort of inflated radiation suit, which is yes. source, for, <laughs> Looks a, like a bubble yeah, boy. source <laughs> for a lot of humor in the Austin Powers movies. But um, Joseph Weissman here has this monologue as Dr. No, where he's talking about his father being German and his mother being Chinese. And, yes. uh, and all you do is you sit there and you go, oh, wait, I've heard a version of this as a parody. But <laughs> once you get that thought out of your mind, you absolutely believe the menace and the backstory that, that he's doing. And it, and it takes some talent to be able to sell that to you. Well, one of the wonderful things that they do in this film is Felix Leiter, I mm. think. Um, and the first Felix Leiter that we'll get is we'll get many as yes, we move yeah. forward through the James Bond films. But Jack Lord playing the very first iteration of Felix Leiter to me is just brilliance because in this film, you know, he doesn't have a huge part, but when he comes on the scene, he has a presence. So you trust him, you know him, and you respect him immediately as somebody that Bond can trust and respect, you know, and, and, and so I just, I really love his portrayal. It's, it's understated, it's fun, and he has a great repartee, I think, with Connery, and I would have loved to have seen him as, you know, Felix in more films. He's a great match for Connery because they're, they're both kind of, they've got a, a certain physical stature, they've got a certain kind of weight and gravitas, and um, this Felix Leiter is not making jokes. You know, there are slight little bits of humor, but nobody's making jokes. Um, and they're not buddies, which they kind of play with in some of the other Bond films where, okay, here's the new guy. We're sort of reintroducing that character. Um, and then you move along a couple of more movies and Bond and Felix are the best of friends and they can kind of have a, a laugh about everything that they do. But then they sort of reset that character again, you know, depending on who that actor is. Uh, but in this, it really would have been nice to have seen Jack Lord as Felix a couple of more times just to get more out of him because you totally believe it. You know, this is a good five or six, yeah, six years before Hawaii Five O went on the air. Um, so the audience didn't know yet to buy him as the cop who can sort of do anything. Um, but this is certainly a great introduction to him. He, yeah, he's a cool looking, he can even carry off those terrible sunglasses and make them look great because he's so cool. Yeah, he, <laughs> he does kind of, what, what's great about him is that he feels like the American James Bond, mm -hmm. you know, he feels like the counterpoint to, to Bond on the American yep. side. 
uh, and you immediately buy that because they both have a presence and a coolness factor to them. Um, and like you said, this is before Hawaii Five-0, so you don't know how cool he really is, but he just, he's got it. He's got it yeah. all. And uh, it's no wonder that they picked him up for Hawaii Five-0 a few years down the line because, you know, when you watch this, this guy, I want to see more <laughs> of, of what he's got, and I just wish they had brought him back. And I guess maybe, I don't know, are we missing anybody, John, that we need to talk about uh, in the film? Let's see. Or? All right, so we talked about the women. Um, oh, oh, wait, uh, Sean Connery singing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's yes. It's, he does a pretty good job of singing. I have a feeling that's the last time we'll see Sean Connery sing anything, or at least James Bond <laughs> sing anything. <laughs> yes, um, of course. I mean, the, one of the most famous shots of any movie ever made. It's kind of it's kind of incredible that it occurs in this, and that's Ursula Andress as Honey Rider rising from the ocean like Botticelli's Venus. Um, it's yeah, she's she's stunning. And uh, she was also an unknown. And, you know, I think this is tricky territory because every, boy, I even hate to say the Bond girl, the Bond women, <laughs> you know, from yeah. from movie to movie to movie, it seems like a constantly reinvented. And you go from somebody like uh, Honey Rider who, yes, she is victimized in this she's captured right along with bond so it, there's at least a little parody on on what they're doing but of course he's got to go save her from the the shackles you know where she's about to be drowned by uh by dr no but there's still a kind of toughness about her there there's a kind of mm -hmm. uh, almost wildness yeah. about her that that yes, is really yes. great uh bardot played a lot of characters after the 50s going into kind of the mid 60s it was sort of like that as well where they were not necessarily the most sophisticated but they had this sort of wildness and energy right under the skin that uh that that's really great and she goes from you know she, she sort of got this dirty just sort of you know living in the wild look to then obviously looking very glamorous and very beautiful coming into dinner with uh bond and uh, and Doctor No, which by the way, if I had the pad that Doctor No had, I would actually uh, I would insist that people change clothes when they come in and put on the quasi futuristic Asian like a Nehru jacket and something. I would absolutely insist, as does Doctor No, that my guests dress that way whenever they come into my place. So, uh, well, you don't want to mess up the Feng Shui no. of the the room. Yeah. I mean, I completely. <laughs> what I love about her, and I, I like how you say <laughs> that she has this this kind of wildness to her, because what makes her different than a lot of the Bond girls is that it, it's kind of an accident that she gets caught up mm -hmm. in this. I mean, she's just really an innocent bystander who Bond, at this point, is trying to do everything he can to save, because she's gotten caught up in this plot. It It's not her fault. Right. Uh, she didn't even know Bond. It's not like they had gone to bed together and now he has to say, no, she just happens to be on the island and, you know, her father's been killed by this person as well. So she has a history here. 
And that's what I thought was kind of interesting. And she does have this inner strength to her because she stands up to Bond, she stands up to Quirrell there, and then as they go on and the things that are happening to them are getting more and more perilous, it makes sense to me that, yes, anybody in the right mind would get more and more frightened because she just has no connection to that kind of world she's not james Mm -hmm. bond you know and i don't think that makes her a damsel in distress it makes her somebody who was in the wrong place at the wrong time that bond is now responsible for and i think there's a difference there to me you know yeah that that is something that kind of grounds her you know again there's uh, taking this with that big grain of salt because she's she was John Derrick's wife at the time, and John Derrick had this thing for incredibly, just outrageously glamorous women, you know. And it was a, a photo that he took that that got her into the movie. Um, so you sort of have to take the the Hollywood reality of the movie as part of the equation here. But just narrowing down on the character, yeah, I, I think you you sort of nailed what is what is sort of acceptable and relatable about the character is that she is just trying to live her own life, just trying to do her own thing. And and the Bond films have sort of captured that in some of the other Bond women later on as well. But I think there's just something that, particularly for an audience in 1962, they were not ready to see this image yet, except if they happened to be sneaking off to the uh, French cinemas that were coming into the u.s at the time but this was a magnificent uh uh, image to capture on screen her just sort of full of life uh uh, coming up out of the water and and a lot of shots of her in that bikini a lot i i did not remember that there was quite as much skin in this movie as there is well and I mean, and it's even more evident in the Blu-ray just because there are shots of her without the top yeah. on, but with a very see-through shirt yeah. on. Yeah. And so it, it, when you think of this being in the seminar, I mean, today we don't bat an eye at these mm-hmm. things, but then, I mean, this is very risque, yeah. Yeah. and it, it's one of the things that made it so memorable. And I, I think she... You know, for the most part, she plays the part well, especially since she's somebody who does not speak English mm-hmm. well. And but she portrays the character in in a very good light, a very sympathetic light. And like you said, I think she has a strength to her that keeps her grounded enough so you don't feel like she just becomes the token woman, damsel in distress and yeah. all that. So yeah. I, I like that. Um well, one thing before we go, John, I think is interesting to talk about just this movie in general, because when you think of Bond films, you think of the formula, you know, uh, you think of Goldfinger and how it really sets up the formula. You, you might think of the campy formula of the, you know, the Roger Moore films, or you might think of the Daniel Craig films and, and they don't have as much of that formula per se. Um, so this has the job of kind of setting all of that up, kind of being, uh, really, this is the proto-Bond setting that stage. And what I love about this Bond film is that it does have a more deliberate pace to it, and it has a more deliberate nature in that Bond is very much a spy. He is very much a detective. 
Uh, we actually see him doing detective type things. Like I love the scene where he is in his room there when he's arrived in Jamaica and he knows his room is probably going to be searched. So he pulls the hair out and he puts it on the, uh, the closet and he puts talcum powder, you know, on his briefcase so he can tell if somebody's tried to get in. Like he's doing the things that an actual spy might do to know if somebody's been in their room. And then just all those little touches give it a sense of reality that make it feel to me the most real of Bond films before you get to Craig. Yeah. Um, I absolutely love that. Um, like I said before, this is a very intimate movie. The, there are a lot of scenes of just a couple of people in the shot having a conversation, but I love that this is a movie where even we get a little bit of gadget work in this, but, but not a lot, you know, you got a Geiger counter and you get Bond getting a new gun and other than that, the most gadgety it gets is the uh, the, the flame-spewing dragon tank, you know? Yes. Um, but it's a very <laughs> mechanical piece. You can sort of buy that it exists, you know? Um, but what I like here is that you don't have Bond's ability to be in contact with MI6. He is very much on mm -hmm. his own, um, even to the extent that I like the little fakery about learning who his allies are with Quarrel and uh, Felix. Um, yes, th yes. That's a great little reveal for an audience who has no idea what's coming and uh, and has no idea who this Bond guy is. So I think all of that works just extremely well. Um, and, and it's nice to see him actually have to do the job. It's not that Bond later doesn't have to do the job. The guy has to do the work. There's no question about it. But the more complex Bond's world gets, the more gadgets that he's got, the more times that Q just sort of shows up when he's on assignment or Money Penny or whomever just shows up and they're there to help him out. I can see why in later Bond movies they had to keep replaying this trope of him being a rogue <laughs> because Bond yes, is less yes. interesting when he's got all these safety nets around him. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's extremely gratifying in this movie is just to see him on his own doing his thing. You just turn the camera on Sean Connery walking around his room, setting the bait, and then coming back and seeing what happens. They do it again. They do this great thing when um, he's waiting for Professor Kent to show up at uh, Miss Tarot's uh, house after he's already dispatched with her. And then he pours two drinks of vodka. He changes up the couch. He lays his coat in there. He goes back into her bedroom and has a seat. He has a cigarette. He's waiting for this guy to show up. And it's just all this little minutia of the work of the spy, which is really interesting to watch. So many little details. Well, and there's the great scene where after he comes back to his hotel room, he notices everything that's missing. Mm -hmm. He goes to fix himself a drink. He smells the vodka and he thinks, mm, probably not chance it. So he opens <laughs> right. the drawer and gets the bottle that's unopened, pours that, and then put, you know, he's put the ice in. He sits down on the chair. He has a file with him of things he want, he needs to read yeah. that night. And he just puts the glass to his head because you can tell he's yeah. tired. He's warm. It's Jamaica. It's probably a warm, muggy night. And the scene just plays so well because, again, there's this 
there is this vulnerability to this character. There's this reality to this character. He is not superhuman. He gets hurt, you know, all of those things. And so what I love is that we have set the stage with a real human being so that, yes, later on, we'll kind of turn him into a superhero until, you know, Dalton comes in. And uh, then I would say probably the first Brosnan movie. And then you get to Craig where they redo Mm -hmm. everything. But, you know, it's just fantastic. And then setting the stage, we have... The first time we hear about Spectre, we get the Bond theme, the gun barrel, the mission briefing with M, the Walter PPK, and so many other Bond hallmarks. So it's all there within the ether so that by the time we get to Goldfinger, it all just kind of like it, it, it congeals completely into what we think of as Bond. But this movie kind of puts all of the pieces on the board. And they kind of slowly get rearranged around until we get what we know of as the Bond formula. Right, right. Yeah, it's funny. That's something that I really enjoy. But by the way, did we even mention what this movie is about? Because I hope that our audience, after just hearing us talk detail after detail, they actually go back and watch the movie. That's you know, true. Bond goes to Jamaica. I, I, Dr. No is a guy with an island, and he's trying to mess up missile launches, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, Bond's got to figure it out. <laughs> but, um, but there's something really fun about... Every time Bond comes into a scene, they play the James Bond theme. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> Even if he's not, not doing, doing anything, anything heroic, like, I mean, just yeah, walking into the right, room. Right. I'm here to see if I have any messages at the hotel desk. That's what you get. Just makes your life feel more epic when you hear that right, theme playing, right, you know? Right. So it's kind of like how I'm at work every once in a while and I'll just turn on one of the James Bond soundtracks so my life feels more exciting than it actually (laughs) is. I know exactly (laughs) what you mean. I might have done the same thing. Um, Yeah, but but to see the introduction of all of those, and by the way, that that incredibly cool uh, set of opening graphics, just the opening animation is fantastic and made a little creepier that, as the gun barrel comes on screen, you don't hear the normal fanfare lead up to the James Bond theme. You hear this just kind of weird, almost like like played on a children's piano. It's like the strange music as the gun barrel is revealing itself. Then after the gunshot, you hear the James Bond theme. Uh, but what that goes into as an opening animation is fantastic. Um, I, well, and then two different theme songs. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, three because it's the James Bond theme, it's the um, Mango Tree mm-hmm. theme, and then it's the uh, Three Blind right. Mice as the guys are singing at the. And it, it it's such um it's such a kinetic opening. It keeps you interested and engaged the whole time. And then I love is that they flow straight into the beginning of yes. the film, the mystery that gets set up that Bond has to go. Um, you know, to Jamaica to figure out. And it it's it's really just to me it it's such a great Bond film. It, it, and I think it's an underrated Bond film by a lot of people. And it's unfortunate because honestly without this film you you don't get from Russia with mm-hmm. love or Goldfinger. And I, I think what Terrence Young is able to pull out of Connery in the film, um, 
And I have to say, too, this has one of the plots that makes the most sense. Yeah. Well, you know, that's something that if you were to give a negative note about this and you could say, well, it's slowly paced. Yes, but this is a story that's also told with great efficiency. You know, everything in here Mm -hmm. happens for a reason. And everything in here happens. Like, I I love the car chase, um, which is not not really a car chase, but kind of a car chase. It's magnificent that you're on an empty road and it's just two cars. And then Bond has to pull over and kill this guy, (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's played with such efficiency. And then there is a a punchline that is maybe the start of the Bond punchline that comes in all the other movies after it. Um, but yeah, I, I think if you were to try to fault it for being slowly paced, I, I think you're not paying attention to the details of the story that are given to us in every single scene. You know, that's why I said, whether it's this or when you and I talked about um, Quantum of Solace, there's a real pleasure to be had in going back and studying this movie in in really you know taking notes and and doing all of this stuff that I was doing for this because you get to you get to reintroduce yourself to a movie like this um and it's just a really worthwhile process particularly if you're a bond fan and maybe this is one that you've maybe discounted a little bit well and and what i think though too is that by being more deliberate more slowly paced it gives you the opportunity to be introduced into the bond world because say if you started with a thunderball as we had it okay or even goldfinger goldfinger doesn't work unless you know bond from these two films if you yeah. ask me you know because there is a connection there is a growth of the character to get to that point and that kind of outlandishness that is happening. You know, this seems so much more realistic of being able to interrupt rocket launches Mm -hmm. on this island, which is close enough to Cape Canaveral. You know, so all of that, I think, is really fantastic. And again, that sense of groundedness and reality, even though it's a hyper-reality that we're Mm -hmm. in, that they that Terrence Young's created, so we'll accept the bond the bondness nesh <laughs> of right. it. It's not a right. word, but um, it, it 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 it's all working. And like you said, I think this is definitely a film that if you uh, if you want to kind of understand all that Bond will become, you kind of have to understand the roots. And this is fantastic set of roots to be able to grow later yeah. on. And it's actually I. You know, I don't know when you when you try to do a bond list, honestly, <laughs> it's it's a really messy thing because you've got 24 films now and there's a bunch of the films that are kind of all in the same area, you know, it's like it's a bunch of those Roger Moore films that you'd kind of put all together is <laughs> okay. So, uh but you know, I think um Dr. No to me really actually stands out as a film that that for me so i i'm on this site called letterbox and you're able to catalog the movies you watch you can create lists it's so much fun and i have a list of my 10 favorite bond films and dr no is number seven Hmm. on the list yeah so it, it shows you i think at least for me how 
uh, important this film is to me as a Bond fan. So I, I think what we want to, at the precedent I want to set, John, for as we walk through the Bond franchise is that we just take each film on its own. We don't have to rate it against other Bond films. So just as a film for you, um, maybe out of five, how do you think that, out of five martini glasses, <laughs> uh, how would you rate this one, do you think? Yeah, I, I think I would have to give it four. I tell you what, I'll give it four martinis out of five, but I'd give it four and a half red stripes out of five. <laughs> yeah, you you kind of need those four and a half red stripes to get you where the four yeah, martinis. Yeah, yeah, and the reason that I say that is because you know you, you'll always run the risk of comparing a movie to every other movie like it, and with Bond you have this huge history, you know. So um, the the four martinis is because we're in the prototype phase of these things that we know that will become James Bond. And, and the prototype is great. It, it's not a, a prototype that's full of mistakes that need to be corrected. The prototype is fantastic. Um, but I think if you just look at it as a movie on its own, totally stripped of context of all the other Bond films that have come after it, um, if this was 1962 and this was what was new at the cinema for me to go see... Then I'm going to kick up that rating a little bit. I'm going to say it's a four and a half red stripe out of five because this is this is something that needs maybe an extra viewing. And it's something that, like I said, those details need to be paid attention to. And it really accomplishes what it sets out to do. It really does. You know, comparing the movie to itself, um, it, it there's nothing about it that fails in that respect. Man, I, I actually can't add anything to that because we're <laughs> in the exact same page in the sense that I, I do consider this to be a four martini mm -hmm. film. Uh, when I'm I, because I, I continually actually want to rewatch this yeah. film. So to me, that's the good sign. What I also think uh, you had to say about if, if this is 1962, this film is blowing yeah. me away. And so, yeah, four and a half red stripes makes complete sense. But not only that, something I want to add where I can add to what you says, I think that this film still stands up yes. today, you know, and I think that's a really a true hallmark of a great film. Yes. You know, some of the, um, you know, some of the rear projection, obviously it doesn't look great. Uh, it didn't really look great it, then. It looked terrible. Um, on Mad Men when they did it now. <laughs> yeah. It, it's not it, but that's not yeah. important. You know, it, it, what 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 holds up about the film is that the story still feels uh, pretty good. Mm -hmm. You know, it still works. It it doesn't feel so outlandish or any of those things that I I can just discount it. Um, this feels more in line with something that could actually maybe possibly have happened in the real world. Mm -hmm. You know, which is great. Uh, obviously, there will be other Bond films down the line that I still love, but it's never going to happen in the real yeah. world, you know? So, um, but this has a sense of reality. And I, I think that this film for the most part really does hold up when you watch it again. If we discount the fact that we do have a man playing an Asian man, yeah. well, at least a half Asian man that doesn't have those yeah. features. Yeah. I mean, there, there are all these little details that you can kind of pick apart and say, well, that doesn't really work or that does. But 
outside of that, the movie just on its own really stands up and the, the story is great. And like I said before, if you are not watching this on the Blu-rays that came out a few years ago, it is shocking how colorful, how vibrant every shot in this movie is. You know, there's something great about that old 60s film stock that just sucked in the color. Um, it's, wow, is it gorgeous to look at. There is so much on the screen. You could just literally go through and pause every shot and, you know, read the text on a page or the label on a bottle. It's it's really remarkable. Well, and, and that just wrapping up, that's what makes it so fun is that this is the height of the beginning of that wild 60s, you know, and the color and the costumes and everything about it just it yes you're right if you don't have the blu-rays or the digital downloads now that are in hd uh which these are transferred from fantastic it really is i'm so glad that i had invested in the blu-ray set because as we said you get details like sean connery had tattoos on his <laughs> arm from when uh he you know it it which into to me and it just adds to the character that he was somebody who probably fought in world yeah. war ii he got some tattoos yeah. he was in he's in the you know in the navy um and it just it's it's amazing yeah. so i what is excited me about this is i i know that there are some people out there that listen to the show who haven't um started the Bond franchise from the very beginning and that they uh, wanted to start with us. And so I'm really glad that we're going to be going through this series. Now, we are only going to get to film six by the end of the year, which is on Her Majesty's Secret Service. So we are going to be taking this slow, but we want to do that deliberately um, so we can really have some fun with this and spend some time with these films. And uh, two, part of it is that... I love having you on the show, oh, John. Thanks, and with your schedule and my schedule, <laughs> it's, it's easier for us if we yeah, spread these out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But we get to do this because of our associate producers through Patreon and the listeners who support us through Patreon. Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson are associate producers here at the 602 Club, and I really want to say thank you to them. Uh, they have made it a, a point to say that this is the show that they appreciate uh, and through Patreon, through their support level, they get to put their associate producer credit here. And I love them both. Great guys. Now, all of you who are supporting us through Patreon, I just want to say a huge thank you. Now, we're a listener-supported network here at Trek FM. So if you go to patreon.com slash trekfm, you can see how you can help bring all of the shows we do here to you each and every week. It's its a big process that we have. We've got over 20 different shows and special feeds happening now on the network. And to put all of that out there takes support from listeners just like you. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can become part of the team. Now, one of my favorite things about this show has been the friendships that I've been able to create and one of them has been with you john where we've gotten to sit around and talk about 
amazing spy <laughs> stuff. <laughs> and I love every time you're on. So let everybody know where they can find you online if they want to talk some more spy stuff with you and about the other podcasts. Sure. We well, yeah, my uh, my alter ego online is at DVD Geeks. You can find me there on uh, Twitter. And uh, that's where I usually reserve talking about anything other than Star Trek, although a bit of Star Trek talk comes into that. Uh, but otherwise, if you're a Trek fan, and I know that many of you are being here at Trek FM, um, Mission Log, Mission Log Podcast, uh, missionlogpodcast.com is our website. From there, you would find us at Mission Log Pod on Twitter, Mission Log Pod on Facebook. Um, we get a lot of conversations going over there. Um, we try to uh, read and, and very often reply to it. Well, a great deal of those so you can find me like i said if you want to talk trek at mission log pod or if you want to talk bond and spies and uncle and all the other stuff that i'm into at dvd geeks is the place to find me on twitter well john i really uh i appreciate that we were able to make the time to do this i knew we were both excited about getting the opportunity to dive into the very first bond film and so uh, if you're looking for me, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me doing The Orb with Chris Jones, where we talk about Deep Space Nine here on the network. You can find me doing Literary Treks with Dan, where we can talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek. We interview the authors. It's a great time. And you can also find me on a show called Aggressive Negotiations. That's on the Nerd Party at thenerdparty.com, or we're also on iTunes as well, where we talk about Star Wars. Uh, we pick a new topic in the Star Wars universe each week and just kind of sit back and discuss that or negotiate about it aggressively. So hope you'll join us there. And then I do have my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? <laughs> Well done. Well done. That's that's theme appropriate. <laughs>